You're listening to a message from Third Church in Richmond, Virginia, where we believe we are called together for the renewal of all things through Jesus Christ. To learn more about Third or how you can get involved with our community, please check out our website, thirdrva.org. That's T-H-I-R-D-R-V-A dot org. Thanks for listening. Well, today we are starting a new sermon series for this fall, and it's a study of the historical books of 1st and 2nd Samuel in the Old Testament. And now I know you guys are just thinking, yes, I love studying the Old Testament. Actually, there's only probably like two of you who are saying that, and that's okay. Um, Why are we doing this? Well, um, you know, if you're like me, kids, I think you probably feel this way too, that the whole Bible feels kind of old and dusty and irrelevant. And sometimes, especially when you read the Old Testament, um, and there's things that seem like they're very ancient and very far off from the world that we live in. So why do we study these books? Well, we study these books because we believe that the Holy Spirit has supernaturally inspired the writing and the handing down of this book given to us for our benefit. And that when we look at these stories, we're not just reading old ancient stories, we're actually reading our own story. We're looking at the story of our lives. We're looking at the human story and when we look especially at these stories in First and Second Samuel, uh, we see this very powerful story of sin and rebellion and redemption and hope. And we learn more about ourselves and we learn more, more about the God who forgives and never stops giving up on his people. And so these are really important stories and exciting stories for us to learn about. Now, we can't cover everything in these two books because there's a lot. Um, and we just have 10 weeks to do it before Advent. And so we're gonna take out some of the most important parts of this book that especially focus on the theme of the king and the kingdom. That's why we're calling this series Longing for the True King. So we're gonna start today in chapter eight. And if you look before, you can go back maybe this week and read what comes before chapter eight. There's a very faithful woman named Hannah who is barren and she cries out to God for a son and she gives him a son named Samuel. And Samuel is a great prophet for the people of Israel who helps and protects and even saves them from the Philistines. And at some point now, though, in chapter 8, a pivotal moment occurs in this chapter that will forever impact the whole story of Israel to come. And that's where we're going to pick up today. So let's hear God's word read. Um, If you have your Bibles, you can open them up to 1 Kings chapter 8. Sorry, 1 Samuel chapter 8. And Katie Thomas is going to read to us verses 4 through 22. So let's hear God's word. 1 Samuel 8, verses 4 through 22. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, you are old and your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. But when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord and the Lord told him, Listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. As they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly and let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking him for a king. He said, This is what the king who will reign over you will claim as his rights. 
He will take your sons and make them serve with his chariots and horses, and they will run in front of his chariots. Some he will assign to be commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, and others to plow his ground and reap his harvest, and still others to make weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his attendants. He will take a tenth of your grain and of your vintage and give it to his officials and attendants. Your male and female servants and the best of your cattle and donkeys he will take for his own use. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves will become his slaves. When that day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king you have chosen, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. Then we will be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and to go out before us and fight our battles. When Samuel heard all that the people said, he repeated it before the Lord. The Lord answered, listen to them and give them a king. Then Samuel said to the Israelites, everyone go back to your own town. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Okay, friends, so here's the big thought for today. Okay, if you like writing down the big idea, here's the big idea. Here's the big idea, okay? When humans like us are scared or feel destabilized or afraid, we always look for a king. We always look for someone or something to save us. But it never works out the way that we hope. Okay, that's the big idea. So let's jump in. Let's first look at the demand, the demand for a king. Let's talk a little bit about context. Kids, I don't know if y'all noticed the banners around the room. Did you see those? I don't know if you guys remember these, but about five or six years ago, we did a sermon series on the book of Exodus, and we have some wonderful artists in our church, um, like Holly Smith and Kathy Ames and Mark and Beth Sprinkle, and they made these banners and put them up, and they tell the story of God's people that we learn about in the Bible. And so you can see how God's people were enslaved making bricks to Pharaoh. You can see how God called Moses, the burning bush, to be the helper of God's people. You see the way that God brought them out through the Red Sea. Remember that story where he destroyed the Egyptians in the sea? We see over here the way that God brought them up to the mountain and made a special covenant with them in Exodus 19, called them his special people. And then back there, you can see how God gave them his law to show them the very best and most beautiful way to live. And so this is the story of God's people, that God called them to be his very special friends. And he made a covenant with them, which means that they have a special relationship with them. And they are supposed to be different than all the other nations. So they don't need a king. They don't need a despot because they have God himself living with them in their camp, in the tabernacle. And they're called to live in this special way according to God's special way of life. So that was the plan, right? Well, did it work out that way? No, it did not work out that way. Um, the book of Judges, which comes immediately before 1 Samuel, is the story about how God's people messed all this up. And that it is the story of their spiraling down into moral confusion and destruction. It's a story of them taking matters into their own hands and rejecting God again and again. It was a very dark time. And in fact, the book of Judges ends with this line. This is the very last line. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. Pretty bad, 
right? Well, now every story needs a bad guy, right? Who's the bad guy in these stories? The bad guy are the Philistines, right? The Philistines. In fact, sometimes today, even when you don't like someone, you say, oh, she's such a Philistine. Of course, we don't really know what that means, but it comes from this book, right? So the Philistines were big, mean, sort of highly uh, technologically advanced military empire at the time. They have very scary people like Goliath. We'll meet him later. And there is this whole cycle that begins to occur in the book of Judges and the book of 1 Samuel, and it goes like this. God's people get scared. Philistines start attacking. God's people cry out, help us, God. God intervenes. He raises up a judge or a helper. God's people are rescued. As soon as God's people are rescued, they go back and start worshiping false gods. They again, because of that, get in trouble and are under threat. So they cry out again, help us, God. And then again, he raises up a leader and a judge. And again, they are rescued. And again, they rebel against God. So this begins to happen again and again and again. It's this whole cycle. And so when you get to 1 Samuel chapter 8, it appears that the same thing is happening again. The Philistines were threatening. God raised up Samuel. He saves them and everything's cool, except this time, something changes. Because this time they come to Samuel in 1 Samuel chapter 8 and they say, you know what? We don't like this deal anymore. We want a king. They say in verse five, appoint a king to lead us such as all the other nations have. And then in verse 20, they say this, we want a king over us, then we will be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and go out before us and fight our battles. This is a very sad moment in the history of Israel. Now you might say, what's the big deal? Kings are great, right? Everybody's got a king. They have shiny crowns, they have a big throne. Like all the nations had kings. Like God even promised a king, if you know your Bibles in Genesis, in the book of Deuteronomy, in the book of Judges. So what's the big deal? Here's the problem. The problem is not that they asked for a king, but why? Why did they want a king? Can anybody take a guess, class? We hear it in these verses. Why was it that they wanted a king? Anybody know? To be, I don't, I don't know who said that because all your mouths are covered, but good job if you said it. To be like the other nations. This is why it's such a tragic moment in Israel is because this longing to have a king, this demand for a king, it gets at the very heart. It's a betrayal of their identity as God's people. They're basically saying, you know what? We don't want a special relationship with God anymore. We don't want this special arrangement where God alone is our ruler and, and, and we don't need any human rulers over us. We don't, we don't want this anymore. We want a king like all the other nations because we want to be a nation like all the other nations. They're betraying their identity as God's covenantal people. One commentator says this, in essence, they no longer want to be Israel. Because I don't know if you've seen um, that great movie, Lion King. You seen Lion King? Um, you know, in that movie, Simba is the son of the king. He's got a special identity, a special calling, right? And yet, where do we find him in the movie? We find him living out in the wilderness, hanging out with a pig and a, and a um, weasel, meerkat, meerkat. <laughs> what is a meerkat? <laughs> Some, I don't know. A weasel, meerkat, same thing. 
Anyway, um, so, so Simba is living out in the desert, betraying his identity as God's, not as, 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 as the special calling that he has as the future king, living free. And in a way, this is what this is happening here is that God's people are saying, you know what? We don't want that special calling anymore. We don't want to be the special people anymore. We want to be free, doing our own thing, just like everybody else. And what's so sad about this is that God specifically told them on that mountain in Exodus 19 that you are called to be unlike the nations, to be a light to the nations. And here they're saying, we want to be like all the other nations. They're ready to throw everything away just to be like everybody else. Why are they doing this? Well, it's pretty clear in the text because they do not trust God. It's like the same story of Genesis 3, repeated all over again. They don't trust that God is all they need. They don't trust that God alone is their provider. They don't trust that God is good and that his plans for them are good and trustworthy and faithful and that he will always come down come through for them because here with this powerful threat of the Philistines coming down on them, instead of, again, crying out to God for help, they say, we want a king. We want a king to protect us. Walter Brueggemann, the great Old Testament commentator, says it this way, the whole history of Israel is one of forsaking and going after other gods. This request for a king is one more step in that continuing performance of mistrust. And if you doubt that that's what's going on here, just look at what God says in verse seven. They have rejected me as their king. Now, here's what I want to say, brothers and sisters. This is our story. Do you see yourself in this? (laughs) This is our story. How do we respond when we're afraid? How, How do we react when we feel insecure or unprotected? Our instinct, mine is, I think yours is, to take our lives into our own hands and to look for a little king, a savior of some kind to save us and give us the security that we need. These last couple of years, I think, are such a powerful lesson of this in human behavior. We've seen this trend in our politics as Americans. Increasingly, you may have noticed this, that political rhetoric employs this emotive language of fear, promising that if that candidate and whoever the candidate is that your political group opposes, if that candidate is elected, then that person will destroy all that we hold dear. And the answer we are promised is to elect this other person who will save us from disaster and bring us the life we long for. Now listen to that. This is not the language of politics. This is the language of theology, spirituality, damnation and salvation. Destruction and redemption promised to be given us through a human ruler, a little, a little king, a little king. And unfortunately, Christians seem to have fallen into this trap as much as anyone else. Y'all, there's, I admit, there, this is a scary world that we're living in. We all know that. We all know that better than ever after this past year. Yet increasingly, we say even people of faith looking to political leaders to save us and give us the kind of life that we want, Or perhaps we look to a very dynamic and charismatic pastor or Christian leader to rescue us. Or if it's not a person, we often look to something else to give us the security and the control that we crave, whether it's possessions or a job or a relationship or the capacity to control our circumstances. 
You know, personally, um, I know that the, 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 the pandemic has affected all of us differently financially, but just personally and surprisingly for my family, we've actually benefited financially from, from this past year. We just, we weren't spending as much, and the government just kept sending us checks because we have so many dang kids. And, um, and, and so it was weird because I suddenly ended up in this situation where I had more in my savings account than we've ever had before, but suddenly I find myself actually far more stingy, less generous, and more worried about money than I ever have been in my life, though I have more money than I've ever had before. Why is that? Well, because for me, money often serves like a little king, a little protector, you know, someone, something that will give me the safety, security, and stability for the scary road ahead. And so the challenge here is for you to ask yourself, what about you? Who is your little king? Well, what's your little king? Right? Who or what are you looking to as a substitute for God? Can you see the ways that you don't actually believe that God will provide? That you don't trust that God is good? That you don't believe that he's always going to take care of you and secure your future? We demand a king because simple trust in the goodness of God is never enough for us humans. That's the demand for a king. Do you see that demand in your own heart? I hope you know yourself well enough to see that demand. Second, though, we see a danger, a very serious danger of a king. Getting back to the story, the people ask for a king, and God and Samuel are both clearly grieved. And God says to Samuel, hey, Sam, let them know what the king is going to do to them if they actually get one. And so then there is this really ominous paragraph that starts in verse 11, and basically the theme is, is that whoever king you end up with, this king is going to take. In fact, kids, I'm going to go through this list, and I want you to count, kids, how many times the word take is used, take, okay? Count with me. Verse 11, he will take your sons. Verse 13, he will take your daughters. Verse 14, he will take the best of your fields and vineyards. Verse 15, he will take a tenth of your grain. Verse 16, he will take your male and female servants. Verse 17, he will take the tenth of your flocks. How many takes? Six takes. Turn to your neighbor, say, that's a lot of takes. That's a lot of takes, you know? See, this king, it's all one-sided. It's not reciprocal. You know, it's all take, no give. And then after this long description of everything that the king will take, God says this really scary phrase, verse 17, and you yourselves will become his slaves. Now, how do you think an Israelite must have heard that? They've heard their grannies. They've heard their grandpas. They've heard all their old timers tell them about those days of slavery when they were oppressed in the brick kilns of Egypt. And here God says, you think that this king is going to give you the prosperity and the security that you need? Instead, you will end up his slave. He will not fill you up. He will empty you out. He will not raise you high. He will bring you low. He will not set you free. He will make you a slave because that is what the kings of the earth do. They never stop taking. You know, one of the, um, one of, I think, the best modern commentaries on this comes from a really surprising source. Actually, one of my favorite novelists, an agnostic, semi-atheist novelist um, named David Foster Wallace. And 
David Foster Wallace gave what is now considered one of the greatest commencement speeches of all time at Kenyon College. And this is what he said to these graduates. He said, um, in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. And then he goes on to say, if you worship money and things, if that's where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel you have enough. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And he goes on and on and on. And at the end of this long list, he says, the only choice we get is what? To worship. Because we all worship. Now, what he's saying here is the same thing that this sermon has been about, just using different words. He's saying that whether you're religious or not, whether you're Christian or not, every human being looks to something to save them, to save them, a little king. We all look to a little king to save us, deliver us, protect us, make us whole. And he's saying here, this guy who doesn't know Jesus is saying, the very kings that you think will liberate you will actually eat you alive. So look to beauty and fitness and sexual allure. You will end up insecure or vain or, or, or even addicted or, or, or disordered. Uh, you, look up to, you look to money and wealth as your king, as I have struggled in my own life recently, and you will never have enough. You'll always need more. You'll be racked with anxiety the more you have. You look to a political or religious leader, and you will find yourself excusing or even justifying manipulative behavior that is destroying you and your own community just to get you the security and the salvation that you think you need. And Wallace says, anything you put your trust in will eat you alive. And the tragic thing about this is, three months after he said these words, he takes his own life. God says, any king, any king you look to will leave you enslaved. So think about your life, brothers, sisters. Think about your little kings. Think about what it is that you look to for comfort, for security, for control, for power. Can you see the way they're taking, not giving? Can you see how these false trusts lead not to freedom, but slavery? Can you see, can you see how turning from God as your one true source of protection and hope always ends up leaving you more insecure and more destabilized than you were before? This is the danger of kings. They never give, they always take. So where does this leave us? Where's all this heading? One last thing here, and that's really the the destiny or the direction of where all of this king stuff is heading. Now, unfortunately, in the short term, this does not end well. You'd think that after God warns them about all the terrible things that's going to happen to them if they get a king, they'd be like, never mind. (laughs) Never mind. And instead they're like, no, now we want a king even more. And so God says in verse 22, listen to them. Give them a king. Why does God do this? You know, partly it's because God sometimes, sometimes gives us what we want. It says in Romans 1 that God gives us over to the desires of our hearts. Sometimes God allows us to proceed in our rebellion. And as we watch the monarchy unfold, we see, for the most part, the history of the Israelite monarchy is a very fulfillment of the things that God describes in verses 11 through 18. It is injustice, depravity, slavery, and endless taking. And yet again, 
God's people end up in the pit at the bottom, literally enslaved in a foreign land, and they cry out to God, and God hears and God delivers. See, sometimes we need to get desperate and see the the powerlessness of our little kings before we finally come to the end of ourselves and cry out to God as our only hope. Some of you probably are in that place right now. You see that God is doing, is allowing you to see letting you get to the bottom sometimes so that you will look to him and him alone as the king. But you know what? There's always more also going on here because even as God gives them over to their rebellious demands, he's also cooking up something new. God can take, I mean, God is God. His ways are not our ways. He could take even the most rebellious human actions and somehow redeem it into his plan for good for the world. And we see already this happening, that in the shadow of this terrible turn, we see that God is eventually going to raise up this king after his own heart named David. And we see that through that king, out of whose line ultimately comes the king to whom everything points. So about a thousand years later, Jesus shows up. And one of the first things he says in Mark 1 is, the kingdom of God is at hand. Through Jesus, the true kingdom is finally come into the world. And a lot of people are excited. They're excited because after a long line of worthless kings, here finally is the capital K king, the one we've been waiting for, who will finally set up the right form of government and kick out our enemies and set things right. They're thinking that Jesus is just going to be a better version of all those other lousy kings that are littered in their story. But Jesus turns the whole king thing upside down. Remember what the people said? We want a king, then we will be like all the other nations. And Jesus shows up and he says things like this in Mark 10. You know that the kings of the nations lorded over the people and their great ones exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant and whoever must be first among you must be your slave. For even the son of man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Okay, so the true king finally shows up, and he takes this whole rebellious human form of kingship, and he turns it upside down on its head. The little kings take everything. The true king gives everything. The kings of the earth will make you a slave. The true king sets you free. The kings of the the earth abuse and exploit the poor. The true king becomes poor to make many rich. The false kings demand you die for them. The true king takes his own life and dies for you. I mean, it is truly astonishing to see the way that God takes this rebellious demand for a king from human rebels, and out of one of the saddest moments in the history of God's people, he gives us one that we never knew that we wanted but always needed. He gives us Jesus. And this is the gospel. We reject our true king, but he will never reject us. He embraces rejection, that we would be claimed and forgiven as his special covenant people forever. Friends, Jesus is the king that our hearts long for. He is the only one that you can look to. He's the only one, he's the only one that you can worship. I wish that David Foster Wallace would have known this. He's the only one that will not crush you because he's been crushed that will not exploit you because he let himself be exploited, that will not enslave you because he became a slave that we might be free. 
This is the only king that you can truly look to who will set you free. So friends, here's my hope. My hope is that in this continual, destabilizing, scary time that we're living in, that you would receive this as a renewed call to trust the true king. Maybe spend a few moments this week reflecting on your, what is your little, what's your little king? Who's your little king? Who or what do you look to to deliver you from your fears? Or another way to put it, what would your life be, how would you look different? What would your life be different if you actually believed that God is the king over your life, that he's perfectly powerful, perfectly good, and perfectly competent to order your life in the world? You know, Philip Philip Melanchthon was a good friend of Martin Luther's, and he was a worrier. Um, Some of you are worriers. I'm I'm a worrier. And Luther used to come up to Philip, and he would say, let Philip cease to rule the world. Let Philip cease to rule the world. You're not the king, Philip. I say that sometimes to myself. Let Corey cease from ruling the world. Because when you say to Jesus, you are my king, it's serious, y'all. This is not, we're not playing religion here. We actually mean that we believe that Jesus is the sovereign ruler over your life in the world. And if you say that to him, it means you're a subject. It means that you're surrendered to him, that you're no longer in control of your life. It means saying to him, I accept your ordering of my life and my history. I accept the fact that I don't know what it's best, and I humble myself underneath your rule. Friends, brothers and sisters, listen. If we're going to be different if we're not going to be like the nations, but a light to the nations, if we're going to be rescued from this time of self-centeredness and tribalism and anxious fretting and worrying, if we're going to be different, then we need to be surrendered to a different king. And we've been given that king, the living Lord Jesus. Let me just close with these wonderful words from the hymn, O Worship the King. Frail children of dust and feeble as frail. That's you and me. In God do we trust, nor find him to fail. His mercies, how tender, how firm to the end, our maker, redeemer, defender, and friend. He's our king. Let's pray. We do repent, O God, that that demand for a king is inside of all of us, that we all look to something, someone, some little king to save us, to secure our lives, to give us the power and control and comfort we thirst for. And we cry out to you that we would be those who look to the true king and that king alone, that you would set us free from worry and fear, you'd set us free to love our neighbor because we're not anxiously trying to keep stock of our own lives. Free us, O God. Save us as we look to our King. In Jesus' name, amen.